I love my little girls more than anything, and I said to myself, oh, no, don't, you can't, don't say that. But I had underestimated him. He went on, I would rather see my little girls die now, still believing in God, than have them grow up under communism and one day die woman. Okay, all right. We are finally back after like two months with The Left is Dead. I am your host, James Carey, here with my co-host. Yo, Jake Anderson. And, and you are, again? Uh, um, Jim Carey. That's right. Okay, sorry. The of the podcasting world. Mm. Now, <laughs> so we are back after a long hiatus. Um well, shit. we're jumping back into it. We're going right back to where we started with uh, interviews. But before that, I mean, I don't know. You got any news you want to touch on? What's going on with you, bud? Um, I mean, nothing major, man. I mean, I, I've been diving pretty hard into some true crime cases. Oh, nice. Uh, you know, yeah. And doing some blogging. Yeah, well, uh, over here, what's your site again? Uh, Well, I've, Blog I've got... It. Got a couple. Uh, I do. There's one called the Ghost Diaries, and then uh, I started a Substack uh, oh, nice. called Malice Aforethought, which is a, a true crime thing. But it's you know right now it's just free. I'm not doing any like paid subscription. Right. I will say I'm not a huge fan of true crime, but I do like reading your stuff. I do like when you write like the long blog posts and stuff. So I will say anybody listening should check it out. Thanks, man. Um, yeah, I read the last big one that you posted on Facebook a couple months ago. Oh, cool. Thanks. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, beyond that. Um, well, you wrote a book, too. You never plugged that. Yeah, that's because it's been out for a while. But yeah. Oh, yeah, these people don't know. Go buy Jake's book. book is uh, Gone at Midnight, and it's about a, a case a lot of people have heard about, the Elisa Lamb case, the weird surveillance footage at the Cecil hotel and all that stuff. And, uh, just living life. Yeah. I write horror movies, science fiction, you know, it's, uh, yep. life is absurd. The universe is a meat grinder. You just got to find what you love to do and find a way to be happy. And, uh, sometimes I'm successful at that. Other times not. Well, tonight we are, Oh boy, we are at it for real. Um, we haven't found a perfect neoliberal yet. However, our guest is someone who is going to disagree with us on quite a few things. Um, it is a writer and author by the name of Jason Sheftel. Um, he is the host of the podcast um, China Unraveled. He has also written some essays recently, which we touch on in the interview, um, I believe, but that also includes, I'll give you a sample of the titles. Um, one is, his essays start as, China Energy Goliath, question mark, feeding China total control in the technology 
technology and a few other things like oh and one about India as if they will be the rising country right so this is as much as we get along in this interview we have some different viewpoints but he also has um, an upcoming book too that I'm looking forward to which is also tentatively called China Unraveled so um, I think he will make a good guest Uh, we may have some differing opinions but yeah it'll be interesting to listen to so we'll get into that in a moment here I am um, and then Jake and I will talk on the back end right bud yes sir all right, we will be back with our guests in a moment here and um, catch up with us after the episode to see what the hell we've been wasting our time doing instead of this shit. Welcome back to The Left is Dead. We are here with our guest, Jason Sheftel. Jason is an author, uh, a podcast host, too. Um, he's currently writing a book on China, uh, but he also currently hosts the China Unraveled podcast. Um, Jason, why don't you give us a little bit of your background? Tell us about what, you know, I don't know, what you, how you got into this field, first off. Sure. So I've been, I've been, I guess, interested in China probably as really as long as I can remember, but the, my first experience there, I basically got a scholarship to study in China. I went there, I was in Beijing and I was sort of in and out of the country from 2010 to 2015. And even before that, I was really, I was interested in China starting around 9-11, I would say. 9-11, the, all the American sort of the, our Middle Eastern misadventures during that whole decade, this, what I kept thinking about was how there's this large, complex country in the background, uh, far older and sort of more intimidating than any sort of small Middle Eastern state. And I just watched how our government was able to go blunder its way through that whole region. And I just kept thinking like, wow, we can't try and do the same thing with a country like China. We could try We got to try and figure out what's actually going on. And I got just very into it, very obsessed with it. And that's kind of what I've done later on. I was, I did a lot of uh, development work, uh, legal work around uh, in different countries in, in Europe. Uh, it was in South America and also in China, obviously. And then now I'm back in California where I, I surf a bit, I write, I do podcasts, and I try and kind of communicate some of this stuff that I've learned while trying to get this final revised version of the book done so I can publish it early next year. Right. And uh, sorry, what your book is? <laughs> I have it pulled the, up here. Well, oh, go for it. Oh, <laughs> you are writing... A book on China. Wait, where'd it go? Damn it, I had the page open. Just go ahead. Well, the tentative title is just China Unraveled, same okay. as the podcast right now. You know, those can always, they can always switch those right. around. Jake's so. the book writer here, not me. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, okay, so it's the story of China's cycles of tyranny and chaos. Mm, yeah. We won't dive into human rights too much today. We're going to talk economics, I think. Um I would like to have you back with one of our former guests to talk about some more of this stuff though, for sure. So yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah. What, I guess we'll just start like this. I mean, 
so you had this interest in China and I, I have a similar one, uh, whereas um, I was literally just talking to my 10 year old son earlier about how the United States is so short sighted and China is not like any other country that we, you know, apply sanctions to or push around like a Venezuela or an Iran, you know, someone who does not have the productive forces within their own country to make up for everything we can withhold from them. So my interest is, um, as China is gaining like this power, what I suppose we'll start here, and this is the broad question we'll address is, what is the US doing right? What is the US doing wrong? And we'll get more into China's policies themselves, but do you think the US is actually equipped to go up against the China in the next like 10, 20 years? Really depends what you mean by equipped. So if you're talking about, yeah, if you're talking about the US government, so I think a lot of people, particularly on the left, we have a, a glorified image of, of the US government when it was at its most capable, right? It's the Sputnik era, the Apollo program, the you know, the Eisenhower, the right. the whole right, the whole interstate highway system. When all of this a competitor. Yeah, exactly. I know. So, so that's definitely something. There was a major competitor. There was the massive ca capacity that was built up during World War II. And all of that united as the U.S. was creating all these global systems, uh, both trade, investment, finance, human rights. I mean, all the, you know, all the major international organizations, all of that was coming together. And there were systems that were, that were meant to keep it up. But once you go back, you go back to, uh, to the 70s, and that's when things kind of started breaking down. So. I mean, the, the story I like to tell is that on the right, people uh, tend to think, well, on the left, people tend to think, oh, the, the country started to lose its way during the 80s, during Reagan. If you ask people on the right, I, you know, they'd say, well, it's actually during the 70s. It was the stagflation and all this. And what I actually like to point to is it was really neither of those. What's really weird about our world and even about the United States mm -hmm. and how it acts is things got weird in, in the night. It was after World War II. It was 1940s and 50s. Like we just, we just try and remember what happened. And so Japan, which was a yeah. Bushido culture with samurais and kamikazes, suddenly went to creating anime dolls and do, writing, you know, doing that kind of stuff. And then Germany, which was you know, a fascist dictatorship for a while, goes to Always creating aggressive. VW, goes to making VW bugs for hippies to go saunter around the United States. Like there was a massive, massive shift in the whole structure of world politics and world economics that we assume and that we take for granted. And that really what we're seeing in the seventies and the eighties was these things were progressively breaking down and evolving. So the seventies, you saw the breakdown of the currency, the financial system all around the world with the gold standard, with the, the oil markets and the energy systems, all of that started to evolve. And then in the eighties, you got the, well, you got the, the transportation revolution around the world that enabled globalization as we know it, and the information systems to sort of offload production all around the world and create all these globalized networks that eventually centered in China during the late 80s, 90s, and 2000s, and sort of brought us to, to where we are. And so when we're asking about what, what the U.S. can do and what capacity it has, I mean, the U.S. for a while was trying to, like, kind of, I mean, it was trying to keep the whole like take the whole world on its shoulders right. in some sense and obviously the u.s has done terrible things literally in every country so i think the number of countries that hasn't been invaded by the united states it's like two i think there's actually two or like three it's, it's like single digits it's yeah when you consider everything mean. else yeah um but when we're looking at what the u.s needs to do now we're actually looking at a very different world so the unfortunately a lot of the things the u.s might want to do to say confront china is going to leave a lot of the rest of the world holding the bag. And that's something that is 
pushed left and right administrations in the United States, along with cheap prices from Chinese labor and goods, to, to not do as much as they are starting to do now. So that's the first thing I'd say. And then we got to, if you think just the, the U.S. isn't quite the capable government that China is. I mean, the, the real power is sort of regulatory. So like you mentioned, knocking out Iran's finance, you know, access to the financial system or Venezuela's this or all that, that's, that's useful. But with China, if you want to do something like that, you basically have to try and, you know, cut the cord. That's where all this decoupling talk comes from, right? Because it's so large, you have to try and say you can't get anything from anywhere. And, you know, we'll, we'll see how that goes. I actually think China is vulnerable to a lot of these things, but, but... it's not quite... It's just not quite well. It's I would not say in, I, I'd say you saw the opposite in Europe over the last couple of years, where China ended up getting a foot in due to like the you like the lack of confidence in the United States. Where do you see that? I think the, the ideas of like five G technology, you know, buying like five G equipment from China came up and things like that among European leaders, where it was just. I think that Europe is. Uh, and like towards Russia too, you know, they're the same way. Um, I think a lot of countries are losing confidence in the U S to the point where both it's not that they're going to allow China to step in, like say in Africa or something, but I don't think European countries are going to be nearly as hesitant in the future of doing business in China. And, you know, you were kind of getting there, but I think one thing China has over us is their government has stability. We change ours basically every two years. I mean, it'll probably be a Republican majority next year in the House and Senate, or at least yeah. one of them, you know? So I think China has the advantage of having the stability and the, you know, the state directing productive forces that they can actually offer things to even some Western countries that might not have necessarily wanted to do business with them like 10 years ago. Yeah, it's in, the stability thing is very interesting. So they, we have different types of stability. So the U.S., you know, the U.S. government, it changes rapidly, right? You go from left to right administrations over and over. There's not policy continuity. There's not really program follow through because right. of all this very often. But in China, I mean, they don't they can't do power transfers. So let's say Xi Jinping died right now, like while we're talking. Well, what, what happens? Well, what happens is a massive battle royale, whether in the shadows or on the streets. Uh, until you can find a new grand poobah, basically. And that's something you always got to keep in mind because the there's only been one successful peaceful transfer of power since 1949 in China, and that was Hu Jintao. Otherwise, there's, you end up with pur you know, massive purges. And what's going on in China right now with Xi is the largest purge, series of purges. It's basically a, continu it's a continuous purging um, all the time. And so it's the largest since 1978. So you have a very flat structure at the top and you don't have processes to rejuvenate the political leadership. So you get this weird thing where you have stability in the moment, like no one's challenging him real, really, but what do you do as time moves on? And so it looks like he's going to try and lead, maybe not for life, but probably for another five, 10 years. And that, you know, there's very difficult things you have to deal with when that's the case. So we may have really incompetent governments that mess everything up and don't follow through and then you switch to another one and they're just as incompetent, but you know, if someone dies in the leadership, you don't, you don't have a problem there. And we kind of take that for granted, but it's a very, very big deal. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely, uh, I would say so. Yeah. Obviously China, you know, the idea of a giant party apparatus is foreign to most Americans. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, like the inner party elections of a 
president of a country is very strange. I mean, I'm, to Americans, you know, parliamentary elections are just alien too, so it doesn't really matter. We're not familiar with most Western democracies, let alone China's. Um, <clears throat> I think that is like, you're right. It, it would definitely, you know, there is, it's like any type of bureaucracy. There's internal, you know, internal factions. So you could say the same about any place like this, like Saudi Arabia or anything like that, obviously. There's these conflicts between internal factions of the leadership where, as I think in China though, I don't, what do you think Xi represents with his faction of Chinese leadership? I mean, what do you think his goals are? I mean, I think he's trying to keep the country together. I think that just as simple as that, the, I mean, the basically around 2012 party leadership, I mean, the way, the way a leadership transition works in China, roughly speaking, like in a colloquial way, you could just think about it as like, basically you have a bunch of party elders that get together and decide which new youngling they're going to bless, right. As the, as, as the next guy. And then that whoever gets blessed proceeds to purge all their rivals, right? That's the actual cleaning mechanism. So that was what happened with uh, Bo Xilai in, in, with Xi Jinping, you know, 20, I think 2014. The, this was the, he was a major competitor and you actually can't allow them to uh, persist, right? So in Chinese right. history, the worry is regional centers of power. So, you know, you're the, you know, the grand emperor in Beijing, but if you have a, a very strong, uh, local power leader, local leader in you know Shang- the Shanghai region or the Sichuan region or a far away, even in Inner Mongolia or whatever, all of these have to be neutralized. They, they cannot uh, be allowed to exist because when, when troubles arise, often they start to get their own ideas. And so there's all this constant maneuvering in this sort of massive apparatus. You got to remember the Communist Party is like 95, 98 million people. It's really massive. Right. So people always comment on like the corruption in there, which is true, but you also have like this stacked hierarchy. So a big problem with the original Wuhan outbreak was was basically that you had multiple levels in, in, in the party system, like the Wuhan local guys, the, 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 pro, the provincial guys, and then the central guys, all miscommunicating, all trying to hide things from one another. Yeah. And that's what you, that's, you kind of get these blowups. I will say, I will admit, there's definitely an issue with having like this bureaucracy kind of system like that, you know, where it's just this one party bureaucracy. And obviously China has like, you elect somebody locally to represent you to the party who elects a higher member who ends up picking your president or whatever, you know? So, I mean, they have elections, but it's, it's all in this very bureaucratic system where I will admit that does happen. You know, these local leaders that G has taken, a a lot of them are people who failed to meet quotas or something before the coronavirus. And then during the virus, you know, people were not meeting the expectations of the central government. So clearly they were trying to, you know, it was a case of CYA and, uh, you know, just trying to cover up things or make themselves look better. And there was, I, I will admit it has miscommunication because it is this sort of top down structure, you know, it is a very interesting structure, which I don't think a lot of Americans understand. I don't, I think they just like think that some Chinese guy takes, you know, comes on TV one day and says he's the president. Well, it's also evolving. And the, the thing about the party that's, I mean, it's actually evolving right now yeah. sort of before our eyes, right? So in the 1970s, the party was everywhere. It was, if you wanted to get housing, if you wanted to get education, mm-hmm. if you wanted to get food all of it was done through your local party secretary who could have been a, a shoemaker right <laughs> during the, the culture i've learned it's a lot harder to get in is that true 
Yeah. So the, okay. the actual communist, so again, 1970s era, these were not competent people overall. Right. Um, they just didn't have the training, they have the education. China did not have the training and the education, right? This, this is earlier, this is basically a pre-modern thing. Oh, you yeah. can almost I, think about I it. I mean, the Wuhan um, lab itself was built by France, you know? <laughs> yeah. The Wuhan, the Wuhan lab has a very large, uh, troubled history. I mean, it looks, it was the, the first lab of its type in china and it took i think 15 years to certify 12 years to certify build and certify First one, very though. very rare in china mm-hmm. very rare in china for that something like that to happen um but just getting back to the party yeah the right in the 70s so you had to go everything through, through through your local party guys these guys were incompetent you know but as the reform and opening up era kind of came a lot of the, the party kind of receded into the background a little bit, right? So it was sort of behind the shadows, it was in the shadows doing things, but you weren't interfacing with it all the time. And that was good. And that was intentional I mean, because for foreign companies, for all these things, because like you said, people don't quite get it. They don't, uh, it's very uncomfortable. It's not familiar for corporate, of, corporate officials or any official, basically. It's very weird. But now, as China has become more rejuvenated and proud, it's the party is actually moving back into the forefront so it can claim credit for everything, right? Because it doesn't want to be the silent, uh, you know, behind the scenes Svengali that sort of brought China into the modern world. It wants to be known for it because it, it gets its legitimacy through the, its performance, through actually doing all these things. So you're starting to see party officials, party sales, party meetings, party everything in kind of every organization, right? We're seeing that across the tech sector. We're seeing it throughout real estate. So any major multi-tenant building in any sort of major coastal China city has a sort of party um, official associated with it who's looking at all the tenants and basically has a substantial control of everything going on. And there's even weirder things going on. Like there's almost like gamification going on within the party. Like there's, this is very bizarre stuff. I mean, so remember to 98 million people who are trying to enforce discipline. You don't have uh, charisma mediated mechanisms like, you know, uh, elections or anything like that. Like not elections like we know. Um, like, so like you could have new blood into the thing. You really have these cohorts that sort of pass through the years, right? And you kind of if you play the right thing, you sort of move along and you can reach the top of your, your sort of your cohort. Oh, but, to be fair, we're looking a lot more like that here now. Yeah, you think so? Yeah, I mean, look how old most of our party officials are. Yeah, yeah, no, I see everyone, everyone really focuses on that. What I see also is a lot of the most of the energy in, in the U.S., I mean, besides Bernie Sanders on, on, the, on the left, I mean, I think that there's I think we're going to see kind of the influencerification of a lot of politics in the U.S. I mean, I think that yeah, <laughs> that's it's coming. I mean, it's it's everywhere. It's so it's kind of farther along in certain ways in China, uh, not with not in politics at all. That's not how it happens. Actually, that's actually kind of true. Bo Shilai, for example, used a lot of social media. And he did these huge rallies in um, in his region. He did all these things. He was becoming a very, very visible force, and that was actually what made him such a big threat to Xi. It was like this idea that you can have. Uh, is sort of visible spectacle presence and, and get accrue power from that. Even, the, even regardless of your position in the party, that's actually very, very threatening in China. So that was a big reason he got knocked down. And well, it's who knows, you know, Dwayne Johnson or the rock could easily run for office and, and do extremely well. That's just kind of the, the level we're all working at these days. So yeah, yeah I see it. <laughs> yeah. I, this, I, I mean, we are kind of, a, 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 you know, um, neurotic country so we could easily elect like a 35 year old with you know no degree who was just on like the apprentice or something that we like but <laughs> yeah um i think that you know as far as china goes what do you think um 
I suppose, you know, with that in mind, with the sort of party and fighting in mind, do you think that China has some credit to take for like the fact that the state directs or the communist party do you think the communist party has some credit to take for the fact that the state directs so many major industries do you think that's played a role in like lifting all these people out of poverty or what how do you view this well, as far so, as the state directed growth and the improvements it's made right i mean i think uh, the general thing I like to, to keep in mind with this, it sort of gets down to the question of, of industrial policy, right? People are talking about that a lot in the United States now, mm -hmm. because it seems to be where China is pushing the US. And what I'd say is China's, I mean, okay, on, it happened on a way larger scale, way, way larger scale, but China's uh, basic program followed basically the Japanese model, which was the, later the German model and also the South Korean model. It's one of the few available models if you want to become like a high income, advanced industrial economy and basically it's export oriented industrialization is what it's called there's many many ways to it's described but basically you you sort of you get i mean there's a lot of ways to describe it, but you basically ex, you export certain goods you find niches in various markets you sell to consumer uh large consumer nations like the united states and then you slowly move up the value chain reinvest the money in your in your economy balance your currency and your in your whole monetary system sort of using the hard currency you get from these countries so the reason china and japan and, and south korea all of them have enormous amounts of u.s uh reserves of, of u.s dollars is because they they have to do that because the natural thing that would happen is that if if all this if you're selling all this stuff you, you actually be losing all these dollars and all that so you actually have to you have to you have to hold them to sort of maintain your currency. Otherwise, it would, it would all get out of whack. But that's sort of the process is you, you do this export oriented industrialization. And that is by its nature, a form of industrial policy, because what you're doing is you're taking in right. these goods, you're, 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 you're backwater, basically. And then you say, Okay, so we're going to build all the things that let's just use, for example, the United States has. So you're basically copying what other countries have already done. And and applying it to your, your your system and your region and your culture and, and all that. But really, I mean, if you're building rail systems, if you're building electric, electrical grids, like you're, you, it, it's basically the same sort of thing. But that, and that's really what China's done. China's done it extremely well and actually done it with so many, for so long and at such a high level. Like just for example, it's, it's infrastructure investment as a percentage of GDP has been like 8% for decades, right? No, no other country has ever gotten close to this number. It's larger than all the other infrastructure booms almost combined. So it's crazy. And that's allowed them to build massive economies of scale in, in road production and railroads in everything, right? You could do, you have systems, you have workforces, you have uh, management structures that are all so used to it and so good at it and do it at such a high level. Obviously at the beginning you don't, but over time, you know, 30 years later, you really can. And you, you can just build marvelous things. The real question comes, what do you do when you've kind of tapped out of all of that, uh, that's that's sort of the, the the major the major question is like, does industrial policy really work? Uh, if you're if you're saying, oh well, there's like five industries we like, and we'll do this, 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 and this, and then everyone's sort of also investing in this sort of five almost hyped industries, maybe you could say, like almost hyped or again influencer thing, like right, like is this really just the the GameStop or the GameStop or the AMC of of uh, you know? future technologies, right? Is it just something that everyone is saying is, is really the good thing? And that's kind of the question. That's where a lot of the, the world is right now. So China has a huge host of things it wants to invest in. Uh, 
advanced, you know, advanced robots, biotechnology, supercomputers, all, all of these things, semiconductors. The, the, the real question though is like, now you actually have to do something very different, which is to innovate on all of these, in, in all of these areas. And the challenge for China, it's not just a, like a small country like South Korea, where you can apply this workforce that's super, you know, been super diligent and you just sort of apply them to these new high tech uh, areas. China has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people that has to keep employed, keep working, and you know basically keep you know from rebelling in any sort of way and it gives it the scale question in china makes its challenges over the next particularly this decade really really severe so when we're looking at xi jinping his state like the state direction uh, in everything like what we're seeing now is the state is actually asserting control in all sorts of industries but it's state direction in a sort of a, for a different reason, right? During the, like I was saying, the, through the seventies, it was, I mean, before the seventies, you had state direction of everything. It was a disaster, right? Cause they didn't have the, they didn't actually, they couldn't accumulate the technologies and move up the value chain. They weren't able to industrialize indigenously, which is very few countries can. So that didn't happen. And you sort of moved away from state direction in some respects, but also did reconfigure industries repeatedly. So in China, you'd reconfigure the electricity industry, you reconfigure the uh, defense sector, and you do all this constantly. And uh, there is definitely sort of state direction of large um, areas of the economy. But all of these areas through, let's say, 2015, 2016, all of these areas, you were still, you still had uh, models around the world for what you wanted to be. Now, there's, there's a similar thing but really what the the state direction we're seeing in china now like the sort of evolving emphasis in the country is much more about how do we get self-sufficiency in key technologies how do we make sure the u.s u.s can't punish us or harm us in various ways how do we ensure social stability so we don't have so we have high education so we don't have kids literally even playing video games all the time we don't have drugs we don't have all of these things how do we keep keep the peace really and that includes massive investment in artificial intelligence and surveillance technologies and the, the, really the best area to think about is technology where the big companies the tencent alibaba baidu the sort of main sort of internet platform technologies that everyone was really hyping during the 2010s these and, and, and multiple other ones as well these are all receding the the China's government has basically made it clear that this isn't what they see as technology anymore. What they see as technology are sort of key things that could, like I was saying, that could sort of keep the country um, moving, I guess you could say, moving up the value chain, moving towards a place of, of stability and prosperity. And it's, it's definitely going to try. And there's, uh, there's definitely a lot that it did right. I mean, no, God, nobody thought in the late 1990s that China would get anywhere near where it, where it is today. Um, but I will say, I think the real question is what do you do? And China doesn't know the answer to this yet. It's sort of trying to figure out its own uh, future, its own sort of uh, vision for what China will be like. That is, what do you do when you, when you have to really innovate specific and create specific systems for your country that you're no longer really planning to export to the rest of the world. Like we live in a world of buy American and buy European and buy Chinese now. So, well, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. But one thing I really focus on is this, deglobalization of the world because it is, is really a key to what's what's going to happen um especially with china with the rest of the world so when you were talking about the u.s sort of abandoning or sort of losing credit with a lot of the with a lot of europe i think it's true i think also in a strong sense the u.s doesn't quite care all that much about much of the rest of the world i think it's very callous to say that but the 
that's sort of what we're seeing. I think that sort of little brush fires are starting all over the place. Um, Syria is basically totally collapsed and Lebanon right now is going through maybe one of maybe the worst, maybe the top three worst economic I don't know, decimations uh, uh, in like the last 150 years. It's disappearing. Like the entire country is fleeing. Like all the educated people are literally fleeing the country and they don't have power. They don't have food. They don't have this. And it's on and on. Same thing in Cuba. We're, we're seeing a level of, well, things unraveling around the world that is so beyond the capacity of the American government to manage or even attempt to manage or even try to verbalize that it's just sort of letting things fly. And we saw that with the basically the the euro crisis started with this sort of European debt crisis in 2010 when Greece, Eastern Europe, all these places, they started to have their own conflicts with Europe and the U.S. just realized they really couldn't do anything about it. So this is sort of the, the world we live in. I think that when we look at China, there's what, what I love about China is really that it's it's going to be the major compare, point of comparison for the United States for the foreseeable future. It's not Germany, it's not France, it's, it's not anyone else. And it opens up really big questions about what the state should be doing or could be doing um, that yeah. are important. I, um, I'll, I'll say that they definitely have made, um, I, I do think they have some advantages by the, the adaptation they've made by going from like light manufacturing to focusing on the tech sector and like STEM fields for education and things like that. Whereas if you look at somebody like a Russia who's still like super reliant on gas and things like that. Whereas I think China has a much better chance of moving into the future in some manner, just because of how they've restructured their economy over the last like 10, 20 years. Um, I don't think, I honestly don't think that was in the plan when, you know, the like World Trade Organization was set up. <clears throat> um, I think China was supposed to be a sort of, supplier of cheap goods on the level of what we see like a Bangladesh or some or a Vietnam now, you know what I mean? And I think that what wasn't counted on was such a massive nation being able to actually restructure. Like you said, they reinvested the money they ended up getting from opening up the economy into vastly transforming the economy, which I, I think puts them in. And again, they are, you know, they're the other large economy in the world. So who knows how much of an advantage it provides. But I do think it provides more of an advantage to say like someone who's much more closer to a relevancy like Russia now. Jason, I was going to ask you, uh, um, I was interested that you brought up technology and artificial intelligence. Um, I mean, I think that's uh, an aspect of, of China that that. Uh, well, it's interesting to me. For example, you mentioned you know artificial intelligence. Uh, the way China is investing in technology across the board, uh, environmental, you know, climate change reduction technologies, um, quantum computers, uh, and to a certain extent, even blockchain and cryptocurrency. Of course, but that's not the necessarily the government doing that but with we, we see a trend in technology towards a po potentiality of uh, decentralized technology for example blockchain uh, potentially destabilizing technologies like artificial intelligence do you think that that could be a challenge for China even though they're technologically robust but do you think certain decentralizing technologies could be a challenge to such, you know, centrally run country? 
Oh, oh, definitely. And the Chinese government knows that, and they're they're ban- they're planning or already in the process of banning Bitcoin and banning mm-hmm. most blockchains that aren't centrally regulated. They want to absorb it into their central bank. They want to create digital versions of the yen. They would be able to do all sorts of minor social control behaviors with, right? So basically, what if you could, I could give you 10 digital dollars that, you know, you've, you've been a good citizen, I give you 10 digital dollars, you have two hours to use them on X category of goods, right? It, this actually ropes in with their attempt at building a social credit system, a uh, social credit score that is used to uh, basically run a social credit system that does things like that. When you do the right behaviors, you get the right um, you get positive reinforcement. When you do the work, bad behaviors, you get negative reinforcement. These, this is meant to be centrally hierarchically imposed. You know, it's the only way that can happen. So they are concerned, I'd say, about these blockchain things. But uh, people were sort of people in the Bit, you know, Bitcoin blockchain community were trying to were acting like a, for a while. They're acting like, no, oh, this this is going to go everywhere. And nothing can stop it. Well, no, China is going to stop it, at least within their borders. And so already, if you, any person with a virtual currency, you has a virtual currency, has a wallet, all of them are blocked from the four major Chinese state banks. You're not allowed, you're, if you had one, your account is frozen and you're basically blocked out of the system. So a lot of the Bitcoin stuff went to China, particularly Bitcoin mining, went to China because of cheap, cheap energy. So in Inner Mongolia and Xinjiang provinces, there's a huge swath of really um, large, uh, basically coal, coal factories that are used to gain a foothold or dominance in multiple industries. So that's how you have polysilicon and solar, and solar panel production basically monopolized by China is through this. And that was also the same thing that was being done with uh, a lot of the Bitcoin mining. That was why a lot of it moved there originally. And you obviously built the servers, the specialized infrastructure. And there's actually a little bit in some um, hydropower regions in sort of Western China that have, you could, there's also that as well. But yeah, I think that China, you know, China's worried about, I, bet, I think their, their central controls are so strong. I actually don't think they're that worried about it anymore. And just like the way they're not worried about Google or Facebook or, yeah. I mean, these are foreign they, <laughs> constructs that won't be allowed in China. I mean, Zuckerberg had to like ask Xi to name his child and he still got rejected. So, <laughs> um, well, so like, speaking for now, like if, you know, for uh, example, artificial intelligence if that keeps evolving at the pace it is you know we, we could see technology advancing to the point that it supersedes centralized control how do you think i mean china will obviously try to control that but that's something you know them china or them russia and us are all going to have to contend with is exponentially increasing technology and kind of an arms race when it comes to ai and, and advanced quantum technology. I mean, it almost feels like, I mean, I, I don't know if a technological singularity is gonna happen anytime in the next few decades, but it seems like eventually it's, it is gonna get to the point where um, algorithms may be more in control of what's going on globally than, than humans are. I just wonder whether China, I mean, it sounds like you're saying China is, is totally scared of that and opposed to that but at the same time china is is working very hard to develop artificial intelligence so i guess i'm curious as to your your thoughts on specifically ai 
Yeah. So I, I was been, it was more um, scared, but now it feels like it has uh, blockchain sort of decentralized uh, technology under control. I think AI technologies are actually, at least the forms of them that we have now are actually very centralized. So China's present perspective at the moment is basically like all in on AI in the near future to supplement its central controls. And the question that you're bringing up of just in the future, maybe they'll basically become autonomous and decentralized and somehow and, and also independent. That is a longer term concern that China actually don't think it's on the top of their list because AI just creates so many immediate benefits for China. One way to think about it is basically what AI lets you do in various various forms from their perspective is it allows them to lower the cost of social controls, right? So, uh, well, you guys probably know, but on the ground, like if, if I were to take a poll of like, you know, any, any given city, a hundred thousand people over easily a majority would approve of the communist party, right? So this is people, something people in the, in America, in the West, particularly on the right get wrong. They always think, wow, every Chinese person is probably just waiting to have this terrible communist boot, you know, you know, off their neck, right? Well, no, they, they know that the Chinese party, the, the communist party has done amazing things to develop the country and they particularly value it in its ability to, like you, like we talked about earlier, to, to promote stability. That's, that's its, its main role that everyone thinks is a great benefit because there's serious problem with instability in Chinese history. So the, what, what AI allows them to do is lower the cost of all of these controls. So if you, so basically like back in the day, so, so for the Soviet union, you, things started to get unwind. The economic system started to fail. It all became very rigid and calcified. They, they could not, you had a, you need a massive secret police force. You need gulags, you just all this, all this stuff. But with, with AI, with, with algorithms, you, you can now do things cheaper. You could control people, manipulate their behavior, uh, get them to think the right thoughts, get them to not see the wrong information, get them to, you know, lead them in a certain direction and away from others that is immensely valuable. And basically originally they're developing these against minority populations. So the Uyghurs have been the, the training ground for, for most of these technologies. And obviously the Chinese, the Han Chinese people, it's not a similar sort of, we want to rebel at any moment sort of thing right now, although it is in certain regions to a certain degree, but in these, it was really where they started to, well, develop the, these databases, these algorithms and these various forms of, of monitoring surveillance and control. What would you say to, you know, okay, so China has a state control over, you know, a lot of these technological aspects, but, and I'm going to get in, this applies to AI too, but, uh, you know, the idea is China does do this at a state level, right? Whereas here in the United States, there's obviously things you can't say on social media. There's people who aren't allowed to fundraise on certain platforms, especially after January 6th. Uh, we interviewed a couple who no longer can get their money, but um, huh. uh, I don't know. I, as far as like the social credit score and AI goes, like, do, what do you think is more of a threat in the future? Is like right now in the United States, we have these billionaires like uh, Musk and Bezos and Zuckerberg competing to make AI. They're competing to get to space, you know. And obviously, SpaceX does some business with China, so we won't go too deep into that. But do you think that? The United States, and we're kind of shifting to this for the last couple of minutes, this kind of upcoming conflict, I guess, you know, economic conflict, it's already here. But um, do you think that the United States with, you know, this system of like, 
I don't know, a handful of oligarchs developing the next wave of technologies in a, any position to actually do something about China? Or do you think that this will end up just, I, I, I guess I'm asking, do you think that this will end up running amok here? You know, because I feel like at this point, the way social media has just become the internet, that we live not under a similar system, but under a system that does similar things. You know, it censors speech. It, and it's not like I love all the people on here who get censored, you know, but it does do similar things. But the issue here is, it is, and you can say what you want about the Chinese state, but the issue here is this is all decided arbitrarily by like unelected billionaires. And you know, what, I don't know, where does this confrontation go? And like, I, you know, I, I know that's a huge question. Yeah, well, I think that you're bringing up a big point that it's not like there are no controls in the United States. The big difference is that there is a corporate control of, of speech and, and thought communication in the US and is and there's state control in China. And I think you're right. I will point out one thing is that it, the state controls are far more severe in China than any corporate controls here. So like, let's say you and I were texting the wrong thing. All of my texts would disappear. I would not get access to the internet. My door might lock itself and then I might get a knock on the door later that night. That's sort of the right. sort of thing you could see. So it's, it's much more extreme. But, but I mean, you are, here, I, like here, if you make your living off the internet and you suddenly can't use PayPal or something, but this is yeah, similar. It's, it's huge. And so I was just going to say, I, I was just, I was just the preface because the, the, um, the level of, yeah, the level of state intrusion there is, is mind boggling at times. Um, but you, you're, you're just, you're hundred percent right that there's this corporate, there's a, a corporate problem for, with the control of speech. And basically the internet has become the only public forum and there's real no, and all the regulations have been left to corporations. So that's going to need a change. Uh, the government, the U.S. Congress, needs to do something about that. And it unfortunately doesn't look like it's going to do that anytime soon because it's pretty ineffectual. But that's that's the way that's going to happen. Going to happen. Uh, if it does, I mean, honestly, it looks like we're probably going to muddle through it for multiple years because they're just not going to be able to get anything done. But that, that's where it would happen if if things were functioning. But your yeah. other point about AI and is China in a better position because it has. It almost has an existential, well, not existential, it has such a core national need for AI, right? Like we were talking about surveillance. All these things are core to how it's trying to keep everything together. That does seem to give it more motivation, more incentive to really invest in it and to maybe move farther than countries where it's like, all right, Google wants to do some random trinket idea, right? That some guys thought of, or that was a pet, you know, a fan favorite for Bezos as Amazon or, you know, Musk here or there, like, right? Like it seems like it could be very misdirected. Uh, all this investment, even almost fickle and, and kind of just frivolous. Um, so I think all that is is interesting. I think that it gives China, it, it just depends where the major innovations with AI will lie. And I think that obviously China is very focused on surveillance and political stability and economic cohesion and, you know, cultural, uni all these things. And AI could definitely contribute with that. But are there major technical advances sort of separate from that that AI will enable? And I think that the U.S. and sort of the, 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 the increasingly the, the private enterprise system here is probably better at that, you know, at, in the sense that if you have not just a couple billionaires who hog all the AI researchers, but if you have a sort of distributed workforce that's able to work on many different things and they aren't, well, some might be motivated by improving the government or whatever it is, I think that you will probably get more sort of broad-based innovation because the AI talent in China is being hoarded to to focus on a, a few things because this is the, this is what we were talking about earlier. This is the question of industrial policy, right? I, I'd argue that 
trying to do what China's trying to do, just industrial policy at that scale, like trying to manage every single sector at, 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 at it, it's, it's just very difficult. It doesn't matter right. how competent you're, it's just so difficult. And the, the traditional conservative ar- argument from like Hayek and, and such is that like, it's so difficult, it's impossible, right? But really mm-hmm. all the AI information technology is actually showing us that all sorts of local information can be gleaned in all sorts of ways. Yeah. None of that predicts, right? The I think they definitely conquered predict. a lot of the planning problems that the Soviet Union had through just technological advancements easily, you know? Well, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it definitely the, what I was talking about is just sort of how all the data you can glean now, right? I mean, so much mm-hmm. of this, the conservative arguments regarding, you know, whether you could do planning or not, it's just, it relates to whether you can get the right information at the right time. Is it good information? Is it reliable, et cetera, et cetera. And there's still problems with that in China, but there's an objectivity to a lot of sent, you know, data you get from a sensor, right? It's not a person that's not uh, mediated emotionally or psychologically or any other way that is changing some of the equation with that. So it's something to really keep an eye on, but man, just, just managing the Chinese, uh, flood, just managing natural disasters, managing right. the agricultural system in China, which is a disaster and is very dangerous and very um, unstable, managing the energy sector with all of its interconnections with the rest of the world, managing an industrial um, plant that you know produces one third of the world's goods basically and it has to maintain access to all these export markets all oh. around the world that yeah all that it's all super i wasn't going to go into all this stuff but it's just like <laughs> yeah every time i see it, it's just it's, it's again and again it's like you're you're also dealing with certain um secular challenge secular in the sense of long term like the the aging of the population there's so many things that the sort of the reconfiguration of so a big thing that was really big in china recent chinese history has been the the rural to, to urban transition, hundreds of millions of people right. move from the field, the fields into cities. And there's, there's enormous problems with, with like, that was a huge reason for all of China's growth. It's one of the major reasons anyway, urbanizing and urbanization, and industrialization go hand in hand. Right. And so part of our current growth, honestly, like, we're kind of repopulating so? cities at the same time, uh, the way that, uh, and again, this uh, uh, this kind of rolls back into my point, though, is the idea that, okay, um, China's developing these massive systems to plan their economy, right? We have similar things here. The issue is they're owned by, like, Jeff Bezos or Walmart. You know, I think we have similar infrastructure systems here that are very impressive. But the thing is, they're now owned by people who are using that money to dick off in space and stuff. So I, I just don't... The thing is, I, you know, I don't live in China, obviously, I don't know, but I don't see the state directing these, you know, these upcoming, the response to these upcoming issues, I don't see the state doing it as dangerous as allowing capital to run free as the United States does, where it becomes, and I, you know, it is, it is the same way in the Communist Party to some extent. But it, at the United States, we're, we're under a similar system where we just have these oligarchs kind of running around competing for control of things, you know. And that's what I, I just see very similar systems here. That it's just they're built in private hands again. Well, just remember that the, the, there's, the wealthiest group, political group in the world by far is the Communist Party. They have billions, hundreds of millions and billions stored away. And there's, yeah, you... you but, Okay. It is capital and, and, and the state are, are wedded in China. They're not separate. And again, that would be the thing, though. Here's my thing is capital here is not wedded to the state and has no loyalties to the country. You know what I mean? It's not. 
Well, I, I mean, think it gets how, to the question of deglobalization, right? Global, if capital, yeah, let's, like capital that flip that could flow anywhere around the world is, you know, is very free. But what, what if you can't? What if you can't really invest in much of Europe? What if most of the Middle East decivilizes? What if Africa remains perennially under underdeveloped or undeveloped? What if Latin America continues to go through booms and busts? What actually what we're seeing actually is global capital is moving to the United States. So there's a there's an argument to me that you know maybe international capital itself is somehow wet, you know integrating into the United States and then further destabilizing things. But this idea that a lot of American money is going to capital, whatever is going to run and billionaires are going to run anywhere else. I think at this point, hard, oh. to, hard to justify because there's nowhere to go. No, I don't think they'll run anywhere else. I just don't think they have any qualms about doing business with anyone. As I mentioned earlier, you know, Tesla has no issue doing business with China. I mean, Elon tried to buy his first rockets from the Russians that, you know, uh, they don't have any, compunction to act in even their own people's best interest. Not that I think I'm the same person as Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. Obviously, I don't I don't see them as somebody on my level, but I don't see, you know, yes, they may be basing themselves here. They may be bringing capital back here. And again, they're bringing capital back here because we're making a more favorable structure to do that, honestly, by letting them get richer. Look at how well they did from the pandemic. So these people enrich themselves during like a national, well, a global crisis. And I just don't see how that decentralized system creating these technologies and this massive infrastructure with, at least the Chinese government has loyalty to doing something in China, whereas a Tesla or whoever does not. I don't think they're going to escape to Mars, but I mean, Peter Thiel was a, posing like seascapes and that dumb stuff 10 years ago. I think they would, you know, a lot of them still hide their money in Ireland. They would gladly, you know, it goes around the world. As you said, globalization, the globalization of finance has really made it impossible to know who owns what and where capital is doing business. Whereas at least the Chinese government has the Chinese countries, you know, the country of China's interests at stake, whereas a Bezos does not. Yeah, I mean, and the, the Chinese Communist Party also has the the party sort of right. in in mind because the, the thing that's happened in China is that there is no alternative power structure at all anywhere in the country. Like, obviously, if I if I were running China, I would make sure that there's no one who can suddenly rise up. And so, what would happen if the Chinese Communist Party fell is that the entire thing would collapse violently and would involute on itself. There's just, there's no, there's nothing else that could run it. Reasonably what happened is probably different states and small regions and provinces would basically try and do their own, do their own thing with the systems they have, which is the story since forever. But there is a, a large, I mean, I think to, to really ask, answer these questions, we have to look at individual countries and, and sort of their long, their longer histories, right? So the U S in, Right. I mean, the U.S., the, the only major federal infrastructure project for the first like 100 years of U.S. history was a, a road from like Baltimore to the Ohio River, basically. And oh it's boy. yeah, that's it. And, and it was it was a it was, it was a minor thing. And there was a it, it's a sort of a, a fact of history that the U.S. had was so I mean, basically well endowed with natural resources, with uh, with rivers, with good agricultural land, with minerals, with a completely I mean, obviously, a region that had never seen large-scale agricultural um, settlement for for you know nothing like China for for hundreds or millions right. or thousands of years that it was 
and also had sort of the new industrial technologies coming on at the same time that you got massive continuous like productivity imp- increases, uh, wealth increases, like cities naturally developed in all these areas. There was a, a huge impulse um, where you had a lot of capital that naturally accumulated in the country. And you also had very little capital needs. That's kind of what I was getting at. Like in China, you have enormous capital needs. And what I mean by that is to build China, to build what we saw. So China, you know, roughly speaking since 1978 has built over 600 major cities and over a hundred major cities with a million people, right? That's incomprehensible on almost all levels. But in addition, all the roads, all the trains, all the things like, it's so impressive. Like if you look, if you go, so there's a, there's a great city in China called, called Chengdu, which is a capital of a region called Sichuan, and which, which is the food, right? The Sichuan food with the hot mm. spicy stuff. Um, <laughs> I like it when like a, a name actually relates to something important. It's like, yeah, yeah I can actually mention something. Um, and it, that region is surrounded by mountains and just to tunnel into that region to build their first train, it was dozens and dozens of tunnels. Like to build infrastructure in China due to the, 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 the rugged, difficult terrain in a lot of areas is monumentally expensive. If you if it didn't look crazy and fantastic, if you didn't have giant red bridges crossing over a, a, an enormous chasm, then it, the two regions would remain disconnected forever. Like if you didn't do all this stuff, if you didn't you know do the, the crazy stuff it did, then it, it wouldn't work at all. It had to be crazy and fantastic to work, and that cost money. That costs a lot of money. And I just bring this up because in the U.S., you the U.S. you know private companies you know again back in the eighteen hundreds. You know, they built, they were able to build, you, you could self-generate enough capital for random private companies to build railroads and build this and build that. And it's, I think it's, it's just important to remember that there's pl- many pluses and minuses to doing that, but you didn't need the state to do it. In China, you need the state to do it. It would never, ever happen otherwise. And that's just something where the core of the, and this has been known in the country since, since forever the this is where the, the whole basis of the country how it organizes its political economy how it thinks of the people how it uses labor how it you know conceives of capital how it how it treats the land all of these things are just totally different um it's one of the reasons like we're talking about just normal economics and this and um, sort of if we talk about dis, disembodied aggregates right like capital or mm-hmm. kind of these it just it can pull you away from what's what's really going on but- and here, yeah. I can just, I'm going to throw a few examples then back. Uh, yeah. I would say that uh, going back to the idea of like central planning by the state, I think that you talked earlier about how China wants to use AI to basically, as I point out, make up for the planning problems that the Soviet Union had, which I would argue we have systems in the United States that do something like that. Again, they're in private hands, though. Uh, we have a very smart, you know, we have quite a few very smart algorithms and sort of base level artificial intelligence it's just owned by facebook or owned by amazon for distribution or walmart for their supply chain you know i think we have similar things in china but again they're in the hands of this sort of small group of people but still i don't think that you can trust them to be responsible so going back to your idea of like the private infrastructure built in you know the industrial revolution things like that you can say yes this was subsidized by the state and yes it was kind of built loosely but at the same time this was a danger too whereas i mean you have things like the johnstown flood and you know all of these robber barons ended up becoming philanthropists because they killed people um i see this happening i worry about this happening again i worry that we have these 
similar systems to China, but again, they're all owned by private companies. And I, I guess where I want to go is what, and we'll kind of wrap up on this. What do you think, what is the, especially now with everyone opposed to globalization and a lot of workers here uh, suddenly feeling that the cheap consumer goods weren't worth the trade-off. What do you think the future is here? I, I don't think the Democrats have anything in them to pull the country together and try and restore whatever we yeah. thought we had. So what do you think the U.S.'s strategy going forward, China, would be? Because as of right now, I see a lot of like old Cold War bullshit being dusted off. Ah, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, I think that even like, so neoliberal and neocon at this point mean nothing, right? Like those were the two vestigial Cold War Party. things. Right. It was like, oh, the neocons were like the military guys who at the end of the Cold War, you had a massive military infrastructure and they didn't know what to do, except everything was a you know a military problem. So you just whack it with that hammer um, that, you know, that's gone. This doesn't even apply anymore in the, in the conservative you know, faction. No. I do think that, there are. I, I think that some well, it's of the not the major impulse anymore. Right. I it's do think sort of some like, of the neocons who have entered the Democratic Party would like to see some military buildup in response. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, realistically, uh, I think the U.S. military is, is not shrinking. Uh, no, it's going to be no. very hard, especially there, there's more of a credible threat uh, in China for the U.S. military to exist than there has been in the last 15 years, to be honest. Right. Just just right. objectively, um, there's a major military buildup going on in China. There's I mean, a naval buildup. There's a rocket buildup. There's again, there's systems, yeah. space systems, electronic systems. Um, a lot of people have become more that, dangerous in the last 20 years. I mean, Iran, look at Iran's capabilities and they're much poorer than China. I mean, no, Iran's capabilities, Iran and Russia's capabilities are, are really uh, nothing compared to China's. I mean, no, this, again, this is the just, same thing yeah. like with the economy you were saying earlier, like Russia didn't manage to ever move off of oil or whatever. It's, it's similar in the military there. There's um, yeah. like Russia hasn't actually been able to mass produce any new industrial uh, weapon in, no, in 15 an years. Show. It's an yeah, oil rig slash arms show. Yeah. Yeah. But you, I mean, you, your core question is, is really interesting. I think it's the one we should all focus on. It's like, well, what do we actually do? How can we compete? Where do we see the, how do I see things actually moving? Well, I think you're right. The, the democratic party is not likely to unify things uh, or it's not likely to sort of build up to anything or, or sort of pull the pieces together to any sort of grand movement. Right. I think yeah. that the, charisma of Obama was really motivating for a lot of people. I think it gave the rhetorical flourish that would usually be associated with a grand movement and then nothing came of it. And I think realistically at best, they'll probably get another very charismatic rhetorical flourish, but like the world has so degenerated and the systems used to management are so obsolete and the American systems within the country to, to manage anything are also, like you said, like very old and, and not even within the government's hands that is, very hard to see, even if someone amazing got elected, I don't think they'd even be able to pull anything together. What I see is most of this decade is sort of internal chaos within both, within both parties. Uh, there's going to be major fixation on the 2024, 2028 elections because everyone's going to be looking for the grand new charismatic figure to bigger everyone together and uh, reconfigure the coalitions and maybe take a little, some of the, like you said, some of the neocons from the uh, right, which is now doesn't you know right uh, trump was not exactly a military friendly person mm. the the pulling pulling them and maybe people on the the right actually trying to pull hispanics or other groups who are actually more marginalized than the, the left actually realizes there's more marginalized within the left coalition than the the democrats realize oh yeah i think i think that there's a lot of motion in all these directions but the real challenge in a 
presidential system like ours and with like single member districts and you get two major parties, there's internal coalitions within these parties that have to be united um, together. And there's, the, the good thing about the Republicans from the political science perspective is that it's actually pretty easy to unify yeah. evangelicals yeah. and family. They didn't care except about their one issue. As long as you said X, Y, Z about religion or abortion or, or whatever it was. I think they just mostly care about punishing people they don't like. Yeah, whatever their issue was. And yeah. I think that it's much more complicated on the left. There's there's groups that don't align very well. And I, I mean, I see this everywhere, with specifically with China. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just a couple examples. It's like, okay, let's say we want to deal with climate change. Let's, let's have, build a bunch of electric cars. Okay, well, what does that mean for the sole remaining union uh, workforce in the United States in the auto industry in sort of uh, the Great Lakes region? They don't want that. What do you do about solar panels? Do you keep building solar panels, which are, will basically all be built in, in China when it's built off of basically forced labor in of suppressed and oppressed Uyghur peoples? And it's just on and on. So you have human rights conflicting with environmental laws. You have labor conflicting with environment. And it just goes on and yeah. on down the list. And it's very hard. You really do need a very charismatic, very inspiring person with novel ideas and, and sort of higher order, a higher order vision that can sort of push all of this under the table, sort of get it un- below the the, the waterline, right? So you can get things done. And I just, it seems very hard to do that, both in the sort of social media world we're in now, and just with the, the total general incompetence of the government, right? It, there's not, there's no longer very effective planning services in the government. It, it's just, it's been a major decline. So it's, it's really, really hard to do. Like basically someone like Biden gets one shot at one major bill and Trump and Obama, they all got their one bill and then they were done, you know, like you said, because you typically lose the midterms yeah. um, two years in. So Obama got uh, he got health care. Trump got his tax thing. And maybe Biden will get infrastructure. And that's probably it. Yeah. Biden has not really um, kept any of the promises that he was going to need to to win again uh, next year for the Democrats to win again. I think the Democrats, too. You see the upper levels shifting as a party. Sort of absorbing like the old neoconservatives from the Bush era t- in a lot of ways. How do you and see our, that? Or, I'm I mean, speakers. the ideas that? of like I, the fact that Hillary brought out Henry Kissinger to the 2016 DNC. Oh, God. Um, the Lincoln Project was, you know, <laughs> although it was basically a scam, it was embraced by a lot of like sort of, you know, rank and file liberals online and it became a sort of popular thing for no real reason even though these were people you know basically responsible for the iraq war and a ton of pnac graduates and things like that so i think the democratic party at the top level is shifting right and i said the party leadership has been you know even sanders himself although he's not part of the party leadership but the the party who they have is like their leaders are they're aging um there's not many people who can come up under them i think that are popular I don't see them doing well in the future. Yeah. And the Republican Party is just completely lost it now. I, you know, they have no sense of like a shared reality or anything like that, obviously. So who knows where they'll go? I, I, I'd imagine we'll have Mike Lindell as president next. Well, I, th- I think you're right. Just when you said that there's no, I mean, I, if, to me, it feels like there's actually no real Democratic leadership. And I think that it, like before Trump, it kind of felt the same way where you, what I think the kind of the way Actually, I think it's, oh, it's actually Max Weber way back in the day who said that these a lot of these liberal democracies will re- basically revive themselves through charismatic individuals that sort of rejuvenate these parties. And that's kind of what I see. Like Trump basically rolled into the Republican Party as like a, I don't know, private sort of corporate, I don't know, basically, what was it? Like a, God, I can't remember the phrase, but corporate 
Vulture? No, not Vulture. Raider, Corporate Raider. Yeah, okay. he came in like yeah. Corporate Raider. Yeah, just, you know, took it over. And then you had so much emotion suddenly swirling around him that he just became the central figure. And realistically, there is, I mean, something like that needs to happen in the Democratic Party. And it seems like Obama, like that, that, was, that was the process that happened with Obama, but he didn't really have the same sort of narcissistic follow through that you see with Trump. Uh, but realistically, I mean, I think that's what you're going to go for. There is no real democratic leadership. There's a bunch of old people, but they're so far from the emotional and sort of imaginative base, the core of their base, that it's just, they're not entities, right? right. You ask some 23 year old, like they, just don't, they can't even, can't even bother to form an opinion on something that Hillary, I mean, that uh, Pelosi has recently said, it's just assumed to be garbage, you know, nonsensical, out of touch, irrelevant. That's the sense I get. So, like I said, I think yeah. that with with so many b- blanks, right? It, you're, we're waiting for people to fill in the fill in the blanks, and uh, unfortunately, we're just going to do that through like some brutal, trying electoral process, one after the other, right? Honestly, I see this going through through the decade because it's so much more challenging these days. I mean, maybe the figures that come to the top will be bizarre influencer like figures who are able to port their audience into the party. I mean, because I mean, that actually provides a form of cohesion. It's very bizarre, but that that kind of stuff actually seems more promising than random elite lawyers turned politicians who go to these events and sort of argue in these stage debates. I think the entire formula for how politics is done probably is in the process of changing. People haven't quite realized it yet. And someone's going to exploit it soon. No, I definitely agree there. And I think that's a good place to kind of leave it unless Jake, you had anything, but. Yeah, I, I don't know. That is, you know, I, people ask us too, obviously, but it's an impossible question to know where we're going yeah. because nobody has an answer at this point, at least not anyone in power. And the few concessions that the United States could possibly, you know, the government could possibly make to at least appease people and maybe peel off some, you know, voters from these crank politicians or these crank ideas that the Democratic Party specifically refuses to take them and the Republican Party just refuses to offer anything material. All they offer you is, and why their coalition works so well is because all they want is to just see people they don't like punished. They want someone who will, you know, that's basically their party line at this point. So yeah, I don't see, I'm in the same spot, man. (laughs) I don't see where we go from here, you know? I'll, I'll give my two cents on like the way I've sort of dealt with this is, I mean, I think people need to invest less of their immediate emotional, psychological energy in, in these sort of just the, the daily political minutia, right? I mean, what's really helped me is basically if you think, okay, you know, we got eight, six, eight, 10 years where this is going to work itself out. I mean, that helps me pull back and sort of the writing I do. I very rarely talk about politics, actually, sort of American domestic politics. I think it's, it's, it's a place where you're much more easy to just, it's just to kind of roll around in the mud and actually kind of get a, a better perspective for what's going on. So I don't know. I encourage people to go, I don't know, read, read books. I mean, learn about, you know, systems, agriculture, energy, things that are like, like what, what I kind of see happening is history is going to be moving. Like events are going to start overtaking what's going on. So we govern yeah. by crisis. So the pandemic comes, boom, something finally happens because they're forced to. So big events are coming our way all around I, the world. I think that also just a lot of political battles will be at the local level shortly you know that seems to be where things are trending that's where a lot of like wilder like fringe politicians have realized like nobody's watching shop at a local level and i think you'll see some of them come up or just weirdos like marjorie taylor green who come up in like 
you know, cut up districts with no opponent and stuff like that. But yeah, the national political landscape, I think, will be influenced by what's going on at the local level now in a couple of years. And it doesn't look good. So, yeah, I I don't have any real trust in that because, again, we're not doing anything to uh, address what's coming. We who knows what the crisis from COVID actually looks like economically. You know, we still don't have a clear picture of that in the United States, I think. You probably have a better idea than I do, which we'll have to have you back to talk about. But, you know, I don't think we know the full damage that COVID did to the economy yet. Um, We just had to slip in the moratoriums on uh, foreclosures, you know. Uh, So where we'll be in like even just two years baffles me at this point because we're not even done dealing with this pandemic. You know, uh, half the population is vaccinated. So... And it's been bad around the world. Like, I mean, yeah, we, for sure. It's been it's been so bad. It's it's you know it's just uh, yeah. reversing a lot of the gains of uh, the last thirty years. So it's real sad. Yeah, I don't. I, and it's like I I think that the idea of the end of history has to just die with the, uh, the Democrats here, and something has to be done. You know, a left of some type has to emerge because this idea that capital is the, the overall dominant force and all of China's successes can be attributed to capital and all their failures can be attributed to the state. You know, this idea isn't aging well with younger people, even the the right wingers. I mean, they may be fascist, but they understand state power, you know? Yeah. I mean, capital, if capital was allowed to just run around in China, the entire place would collapse. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the specific, not just, I mean, it's definitely specific to China, but that's, that's, that's one of the, um, you know, it's, it's a much more complex and nuanced world than than we're sort of allowed to discuss. And I think that our the conversations that we don't have the, because we're so obsessed with these irrelevant ideas and these sort of irrelevant political figures is really crimping the space to even talk about what's going on. So that's why it's great to you know come on here and actually talk about yeah, get some perspective. You know, yeah, trade trade ideas that are actually really useful could be really informative or thought provoking for people because you just don't find all that much of it. No, this is definitely good. And we'll have you back, man. This is, you know, I want to get somebody else on here who's kind of more pro-China with you and knows more than I do for sure. Yeah. Well, I'm, 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 I'd be I'd like I'd to, love to come back. It was, yeah. it was cool. All right. And Jake, you got anything else? Jake was more quiet during this. Yeah. But he, I lose him on some topics. Uh, sounds good. Well, yeah, this was, this was great. I'd love to come back on and it was definitely a lot of fun. I, I, was, on, I was on mute. I was going to say uh, sometimes I'm just here to listen. Uh, it was interesting having you on. I feel, I feel like I learned a lot. Oh, oh. good. Well, I'm happy. Yeah. I'm happy. As long as it good. was informative. I didn't get, I didn't, we didn't get into, you know, it's always good. We don't get into like a back and forth, angry, this and that. It seems like most people seem to think I'm pretty grounded on, on the China stuff. So it's not like a, because you just hear so much ideological stuff with China. It's mind boggling, right? I'm sure you guys might have imagined yeah. like, oh God, he's going to come on and say that China is basically the devil and we need to reorient the, the, the whole U.S. military industrial complex to, to fight it. And this is, this is the great war finally upon us or something like that. So um, I suppose, you know, maybe we just expected you to have a more clear vision of where we're going because we don't have any idea. Yeah, well, I think I think it's a it's time of uncertainty. I think anyone who's trying to provide like a fully clear vision, uh, particularly for the U.S. Again, if if, if history is going to move events, if crises are going to be how we move forward, unfortunately, we're kind of leaves in the wind during a storm. So yeah, 
<laughs> we're also yeah and we have no power our material conditions have will not change uh, we have nothing to do we have no influence over any of this anymore you know um well you want to plug your website and twitter or anything like that uh, and- yeah so anyone i I like Twitter. I don't use it all that much. I basically just uh, throw out articles, little comments on on things I like, but it's actually a good place to reach me because I do do go on it. Um, thankfully, I don't have a great following, so I don't actually get obsessed with it, which is cool. So many people I know are like so obsessed with it. But yeah, Twitter's good. You can check it out at, at Jason Sheftel. Uh, I have a website where I have essays and pro- I'll probably put up a lot of videos and other stuff I'm doing. Also, j- uh, www.jasonsheftel.com. Uh, what else do I have? I have a... I have a Excuse me. Hey, I love the podcast. podcast. Yeah. Dude, I, just, I got all this stuff. I mean, so yeah, this podcast, uh, let everybody know when the book's coming out. And then the other thing I'm doing that I think could be really helpful for people is later in the year, I'm basically going to do, uh, it'll start as a free course that's going to describe some of these things I was talking about where you have, you know, how much just... Th- why countries are the way they are. Why does this country have a population this size? Why does this country always get militarily invaded? Why does this country have a culture like this? Why does this country have a, a state this large? Why does this one, you know, all these kind of questions I think have basically been ignored uh, in a lot of ways and sort of generic economic discourse has overwhelmed all of the more nuanced understanding we need to really evaluate ourselves in other countries. And so I'm definitely looking for a way to sort of correct some of the American exceptionalism on the right and then provide more of a sort of cohesive, integrated uh, vision for more of the identity politics on the left. Not that there isn't both on either side, but yeah, that is, uh, yeah, so it could be interesting. So free course, anyone who's interested, you could send me a DM me on Twitter, or send me an email or whatever. Uh, if you guys are interested too. Yeah, I am. I am. <laughs> I think you, it's, it's it, it should be really, really cool. Um, I just have to make sure I get the time to really uh, put into it <laughs> books yeah. are terrible man books are terrible anyone who's thinking of writing a book just just remember you would never start if you didn't if you realized what it would how much work it would take uh yeah I, i'm like i said jake's the writer i well i did write i wrote news oh man i took the easy way out i couldn't put coherent thoughts together that long but yeah we'll definitely have you back when your book comes out and we'll probably have you back for something else man because it's a good conversation and as we go here, I think rapid, as you said, the, the pace of change is going faster and faster now, basically. It's out of anyone's hands. So I think we'll have more to talk about within the next few months or so. Yeah, sure. yeah, it could happen real quick. So Yeah, who knows what's on. next. Yeah, so I just subscribed to the podcast. Everybody else should. And uh, yeah, man, thank you. Thank you. Turns out Jake could not make it back to finish up the show, so I'm just going to wrap up with you. Um, well, that was a good show. I think uh, Jason had a lot of good points, but uh, again, I'll keep supporting China. Um, I would just like to take this to say, this time to say that uh, the Left is Dead book club will be returning within the next week or so. Um, Jake and I will be back with more guests in the next couple of weeks, uh, getting back into a semi-normal schedule. Um, we will also possibly be making an announcement about future developments. 
for the left is dead and some things related to it. Um, so if you're interested, make sure you go follow us on Instagram. Uh, we have a Telegram, uh, Facebook, and of course Twitter. The left is dead one, I believe, on Twitter. So follow us on any of those places. Um, you can always reach out to us at the left is dead. 420 at gmail.com and we will talk to you guys again soon uh from jake and i we are glad to be back and enjoy whatever mess i decide to round this show out on Many years since I was here.